This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. Everybody, nice that you're here. We are speaking with Mike from Future Thinkers Fame. Um, they ran, he together with his wife Yui, ran a podcast called Future Thinkers for a long time, which suddenly mysteriously has gone silent. And today we would like to talk about, well, what has been keeping their attention, which is a smart village. You purchased 400 acres, about 160 hectares of land in British Columbia, Canada and have been trying to develop a place for visionary living, visionary community. So the obvious place to start is, of course, how did you come up with the idea? Because you were digital nomads for quite a while, right? When did you decide to settle down? How did that start? Well, the, the thing with the podcast is we're always looking at and discussing and trying to find answers to existential problems and existential risks on the planet. So. You know, we've looked at all kinds of things to do with climate change or artificial intelligence or hypercentralization, dictatorships, collapse of, of civilizations, um, all kinds of subject matters. And then we've we've interviewed a lot of people about those subjects and we, we've kind of tied it all together with a question that we ask at every interview, which is how can people be better adapted to the changing environment that, you know, the, how can they be adapted for the future? So... A lot of the answers that we had from people thinking about complex systems or uh, earth regeneration or kind of the meta crisis or the culture wars, all of that stuff, a lot of the answers were uh, relocalization, uh, community, um, getting your hands dirty, you know, being on the ground, doing the thing rather than talking about the thing. So we made that switch about a year and a half ago where we stopped producing content and we just tried to learn as much as we could about infrastructure and community and um, networks to be able to build a regenerative smart village and use that as a template for other people to be able to start and build their own projects all over the world. Interesting. Yeah. Whenever I come up with these sorts of projects, the more I reflect, I notice that there's some sort of, let's use the word archetype behind it this kind of vision, that feeling that you have inside of you when you envision that place. Did you guys have something like that? Like the warm hearth where friends gather around or something like that? I know that you use that language a lot. Yeah, it's funny you, you choose that word um, because we are, are focusing now on this network of villages and kind of creating like a membership or a, what's the term? Private membership association, something like that, PMA. Um, where we're able to do things kind of like away from government intervention and, and create these private networks of people that can um, access information and resources to be able to start these villages. So um, we started basically a crypto web three project. Um, we haven't really launched it in its full form yet, but um, the access tokens are based on the archetypes, uh, the Jungian archetypes. So king, warrior, magician, lover, explorer, mother, 
Um, there's 12 of them in total. And so I would say we didn't necessarily plan to start with a specific archetype in mind, although I think we most closely embody warrior, magician, king, and lover, and mother. Um, so there's like kind of a mix of archetypes uh, that we're embodying to be able to put this project together. But I wouldn't say we intentionally kind of chose any any specific one. However, being in, in this location where there's basically like five months of winter um, and things, you know, it's not a rural, it's not a city or yeah, it is rural. It's not a city. It, there, The amenities and the infrastructure is not in place. So you have to kind of be willing to brave the elements and do hard stuff and learn how to do hard things. And so there's a bit of like discipline and willingness to sacrifice and do hard things that I think is embodied by the warrior archetype. So if I had to choose one specifically that when, when people come to visit this place, they should set their expectations. Uh, I would say it's around the warrior. Interesting. Yeah. I wrote something I called a mythic invitation to refi Barichara a while back where I was trying to think of the different settings that we give for these kinds of stories, the mountains, the forest. And what I settled on for Refi Barichara was the camp where yeah. you're out there on the journey, you're fighting yourself through the forest. And then you turn around the corner and there it is. People are sitting there and there's windbreakers. You just sit down, get a warm meal, chat over the fire and so on. That is kind of the image that I have in my head. Besides like personal archetypes, did you guys have an image like that in your head when you envisioned it originally? Um, it's kind of like bridging old and new wisdom. I think that's the image I had, like techno-indigenous society or something <laughs> like that. Like I'm super into technology and AI and artificial intelligence and virtual reality and augmented reality and cryptocurrencies and blockchain and all that stuff. So um But I've also put a lot of thought and time and effort into understanding ancient cultures and, and ancient philosophies and philosophies that allowed for people to be resilient and build strength and build, build uh, um, adaptability. And so I've read lots of books like Sapiens and books on anthropology um, and Guns, Germs and Steel, stuff like that, to try and understand what it is about ancient society that always worked and what what we've actually lost over the years so um i would say like the campfire is a really good kind of visual for bringing people together but that campfire can also be sort of a metaphor like it's a thing people congregate around so in some settings for digital nomads that would be a cafe like a co-working space that's the kind of the campfire um Yeah, and, and for artists, it might be like the the um, art workstation. Like there, there's all kinds of different variations of of physical things that bring people together. So, but probably the best metaphor would be the campfire. So you've decided we're going to do this. We're going to buy some land. We're going to get people together to raise the funding. What were the basic design principles that you had in mind when you wanted to build this? I think it would be very interesting for the general community to have a frame by which we can start to explore different possibilities on different spectrums. Um, for example, the tech spectrum is one of the things that these kind of proto bees, intentional communities and so on are further along and 
less along. Some people really like rocket stoves and build low tech solutions, while some people want to put as many um, measuring equipment into their force as possible in order to hook it up to the blockchain and so on. Are there some design principles that you chose when you started to plan this um, that you could share? There, there's a funny thing. Um, John Verveke talked about the different ways of knowing um, in his lecture series, um, something the meaning crisis, addressing the meaning crisis. I forget what. Yeah, and awakening, that's right. And he talked about the ways of knowing. So there's propositional, participatory, procedural, and perspectival. And, you know, we're at different ends of the spectrum. We're looking at propositional, which is I have an idea. I have maybe some ideas about how something should work. And then on the other end of the spectrum is participatory. So we had a lot of ideas about how this thing was supposed to work and how we wanted it to work. And then we had quickly moved into participatory knowledge, which basically made most of that other stuff kind of irrelevant. So, you know, we knew we wanted um, something that could support a group of people, keep them working on the land, even if the village was slow to move, because it would be. Um, so we were looking at campsites, uh, existing businesses with revenue already coming in. And we made sure that the initial team had experience and was willing to run that type of a business. Um, and it just happened that a lot of the things that you need, equipment, people, expertise, um, you need to run a campsite is identical to running village. You need an excavator, you need to be able to move dirt and you need to be able to lay pipe and accommodate people in a simple way. So we had like, you know, I think we've got about 80 RV spots where people can come in and set up camp. And that was a big deal. Like we wanted to be able to accommodate people right away. So I think, you know, our design principles, you could say theoretically were around bio, uh, biomimicry, trying to do things the way nature does. But then once you are on the ground doing things and you realize like what, how we realized we wanted to be able to accommodate more people. We couldn't just, you know, have people sitting on a piece of dirt with no way to eat, drink, sleep. So we made some sacrifices in that way um, to make sure we can accommodate people. Um, and then just slowly, like I would say the biggest thing is we're not purists about anything. We're not purists about tech or about regeneration or about biomimicry or about stoicism or any of these different principles we want to bring into the project. It's just we're as practical as we, you know, as possible. Like everything, there are resources that are finite and we need to apply them appropriately so that we don't, we're not wasteful. And in some cases, um, you have to make sacrifices to make that happen. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the interesting things is you come in with this vision, right? And then you find the piece of land and then the land might not exactly accommodate the vision that you had originally. Are there some stories that you could tell of where you encountered that, where you came in with this idea and then, whoops, uh, that's not going to happen here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose there's kind of elements of this where I, I thought, you know, we'd be able to template things and we'd be able to learn from other people who have land-based projects. Um, 
but really every bioregion is going to be different and have different needs and requirements. So you can't come in to a place like ours with like a desert mentality or a, you know, a place where there are droughts. We actually have too much water and we need to move water strategically. Um, you know, our, our well is always full here. And that's a weird thing if I'm consulting with people who are, you know, from California or in drought locations near the equator, that's like, the advice is completely different. Um, so uh, yeah, water management is critical, but how we conduct ourselves with water is, is really different depending on the bioregion. So we're trying to prevent flooding constantly and like move the water in a way that doesn't damage the surrounding ecosystem allows for for movement of water underground but it doesn't you know permanently flood the place or, or cause months of flooding every year so we've had to learn things like how to make french drains and um yeah how to divert water that's another thing you don't just like if water collects in one location you don't just you know draw a path to a different location because it's just going to draw it's just going to collect in that location as well so it's, you can't you have to think about water flows and like contours of land and stuff and that uh, really became participatory knowledge very fast <laughs> and made all of our propositional knowledge obsolete what was it like to learn all of these things when you've been a digital nomad working digitally for a long time did you feel a resistance inside you in the beginning or no Honestly, all of the tech stuff is so much more complicated than this. Like if you, I, I think digital nomads are actually well-suited to do this kind of project. Uh, first of all, they want to get away from the computer for the most part, because most of them are in front of a laptop 24-7 and, you know, tired of it. So this excuse to like get out there and work with your hands and lift heavy stuff and, you know, just be a, be a man or, you know, be a woman out, out in nature getting in touch with your own nature like that, that's really attractive by default. But then like, you know, I don't know, designing networks or learning to do like learning to use the Adobe suite to design content or like, you know, and creating incentive structures for like DAO projects and, and like all of that, it's far more complex. Like, you know, we've all kind of learned to fix heavy equipment and, operate all the vehicles and stuff and it's so much simpler and it's more rewarding too because the like you often in my work i'll work on something for six months to a year and never see a single result and i won't even know if my, my project failed until like a year after i've started it um, whereas when you're working on the land you know right away if something's going to work like the same day mm. and you can get a sense of accomplishment from having you know made something happen That's very true. One of the other interesting decisions I think you've made is you've gone and purchased a relatively big amount of land instead of integrating into an already existing community, for example. Um, that's what's happening in Barichara, for example, that people are coming in there into an already existing ecosystem of various regenerative projects and now try to bring it all together. Why did you want to start your own off-grid? We're going to buy a big piece of land and start from scratch, basically. Well, this place is established and it, it's a, it's a, like a central piece of the surrounding community. Um, everyone in our region comes and visits this, this location fairly often, but we know all of our neighbors and all of our neighbors are kind of in that homestead mentality. Um, so it's not exactly like a new thing. 
However, starting a village project is really, we're starting a lot of things from scratch. Um, so that type of community is different. And I would, to answer your question about that, I would say, well, the goal of this project is to replicate it, do it again and again in other locations. So it didn't make sense for us to start at a further ahead you know, position in a project like this and miss out on the, the initial lessons. Like I, I know of a bunch of projects that are, are starting villages and, and whatever. And, and there's this attitude of like, I can skip out on learning how to run the excavator or the tractor or the dump truck. Like, I don't, I don't want to do these physical things. I just want to focus on community. It's like, well, yeah, but mo like 95% of your time is spent on infrastructure when you're doing a project like this. So you can't just hire it out and focus on funding mm. all the time. You learn how to do all that stuff. So if we had just bought an existing, you know, functioning resort with all kinds of housing and dwellings and wells already established and network and, you know, electricity, all of that stuff already established, then we would be deluding ourselves into thinking we know how to start a village. We yeah. totally would, would not be. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. I've been thinking about this a lot, a lot for years already. And for example, in Europe, what's happening a lot in many places is that villages are dying out. Um, there's just all the young people move out. It's basically the 60, 70, 80 year olds that remain. Sometimes the same person has been elected mayor for 40 years in a row unchallenged. And the main obstacle to starting these projects sometimes seems to me the upfront investment of buying land, building infrastructure and so on. So going into one of those villages and well, basically hijacking local politics seemed like a very, very viable uh, option to me as well. Is this the case in Canada too, or do you get the sense that there will be more difficult? Well, I, I lived in Bulgaria for a long time, so I know exactly what you're talking about with like these abandoned villages. Um, I, we actually wanted to start this project in Bulgaria and we were looking at these, these types of villages to move into. Um, I think there's a big opportunity there for people wanting to start this type of project. Um, because yes, that's true. There are a lot of places and, and you can, if you can put the money together there, you'll save a lot of money by moving into these already abandoned villages. Um, and then if you, if you kind of create the right type of story, then you can get a lot, a lot of local support as well, because, you know, it's, it's the brain drain. It's the, it's the leaving of young people, the people who have the physical ability to run something like this, whereas the old people can't, um, it's the loss of those people that distresses these regions. So if you're, if you are making a project that attracts them back to those regions, then you can get a lot of support politically for it. Then there's also the brain, you know, the opposite of the brain drain. You're bringing more, you know, educated young people in who might start businesses and bring tech and, and innovation to the region. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Canada's not super like that. Like we've got so much space here um, and so few people. So like everyone kind of, if you're not going to live in a city, then you really need to be able to do it all. Like. You need a lot of skills. It's really difficult to find, um, you know, good service providers. So there's sort of this like tough uh, homesteading, you know, I don't know, resilient personality type that is needed to do a project here. You, you can't just find people and bring them in generally. Hmm. Yeah. 
What has been your experience until now with integrating into the local community? Uh, has it been difficult or were you warmly welcomed and people like understand your vision and are like, yeah, we, we want to help you out. What's what's it been like? We almost bought a piece of land in the Kootenays and we, you know, we had talked to people in that area quite a lot, kind of met with the community and there was sort of this almost like standoffish, like passive resistance, like, oh, I'm not sure about these people. And lots of people in that region had start tried to start projects like this before and failed. Um, so there's this attitude of like, yeah, you know, another idealist group of people who are going to be, you know, purchase this land and be out of here in another year. So I felt a bit of resistance in that location. Um, and then there, there were also people just actively trying to get us to not do it there. Like not in my backyard kind of people and Mm. just been like, no, I don't want you here. And so we, we learned our lesson about how we communicate the project from that experience and then we found about found out about this project and realized that this this new location wasn't sort of this like hippie you know disconnect from society start my own thing drum circle you know it wasn't about that it's just basically homesteading that's Mm -hmm. essentially it so everyone here is very practically minded they don't care about your spiritual life your practices or whatever they don't care about you know like that you want to, if you're going to start a cult or something, they don't, they have no interest in that. They just, you know, they want to know that if shit goes down, you're going to help them and they're going to be willing to help you. And, you know, you need, you know, you need some piece of machinery or a tool and you'll trade and help each other that way. And then beyond that, everyone's been super friendly and welcoming here. Like they, they just like the vision. There's, there's never been an attitude of not in my backyard here whatsoever. Everyone we've talked to in this region has been super supportive. And I think that's because they don't have illusions about, you know, creating a perfect society. They're just practical people. They're not trying to like, you know, I don't know, create a hippie commune. <laughs> they have no interest in that. I'm really happy for you guys that you found a place like that. I'm really happy yeah, for you. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So has there been a situation where the shit's really gone down and you've had to help out a neighbor? Is there a story like that? Oh yeah, lots, especially in the winter. Um, yeah, there's people that get stuck and I have to bring the tractor up and like bail them out, uh, you know, from a, a ditch or a snowbank. Uh, we've lost a lot electricity a lot during the winter. And when that goes, everything goes, your internet, your communications, um, your ability to charge any electric vehicles, like all, everything's gone. Um, and it's really critical. Like everyone has to spring into action immediately because, you know, we've got an electric pump that handles all the water for the, the entire location. And when that doesn't have electricity, water is not flowing. And when water is not flowing in winter, it freezes within a matter of a couple of hours. And if your pipes freeze at all, ever, you're done. And everyone's got to move. because They've got to wait for it to thaw, basically. Because you can't handle, like, several kilometers of frozen water in, in your pipes. You just, you got to wait now. So you really like there are situations like that where we have to respond quickly and you know we ask for help and we had our i don't know so much has happened we've had hot water tanks blow up um, had, <laughs> uh, septic systems blow up like we're actually dealing with that, one of those problems right now we've had um you know like 
clogged pipes and septic systems. We've, we've been like digging and accidentally broken electrical lines and water lines and sewage lines. So we've all had to get good at fixing pipes and electrical lines and stuff like that. Oh, I could go on. It's just endless. <laughs> it feels like every two days there's another crisis and you got to deal with it. Well, in that case, this Especially is one of winter. my favorite questions, honestly, is always why? Because you start and you come out of this lifestyle and of running around talking with really interesting people that have awesome visions and then participative knowledge or yeah, you want to do it. And you realize it's actually hard and it's cold and you have to work and so on. Um, why did you keep on going? Well, this is where like the ph philosophical part comes in. Like I'm, I would consider myself a stoic. Um, you know, I lean into hard things. Um, I try and strip down my life to the essentials. I try not to need things. Um, I try not to seek pleasure, um, even though I fail at that. Um, I, <laughs> it's okay. Like, I just want, I want to be resourceful and strong. So, you know, taking a stoic attitude to things means, um, you know, you're self-reliant and, and um, willing to do hard things and willing to learn things that other people aren't willing to learn. And this experience, I mean, those are, that's a philosophical basis of a lot of what we've done with the podcast. So it's like, obviously we want to apply that. Otherwise we're just bullshitting thousands of people listening to this show. And like, we really need to just do it. So I'm not afraid of the work and I'm proud that I've learned so much and I'm now just hundreds of times more resourceful than I was a couple of years ago. Like I know all the tech stuff I, I can, you know, build a website and make, make a, like a documentary and make like podcasts and do all this content based stuff. And now I can like run every piece of heavy duty machinery and like I can dig trenches and I can fix pipes and I can set up Wi-Fi networks and security networks and like bridge that over like 10 kilometers. And there's just so many things I've had to learn how to do that now anywhere I go, I know I can handle myself and survive and help other people to survive if things, if infrastructure fails and supply chains fail and all of that stuff. So that's, that was the point is like, that's why we went dark with the podcast is to learn all that shit and then come back and be able to say to people like, okay, here's what works. Here's what doesn't. Here's the mentality, the philosophical, like mind state you need to be in to live in a project like this. Otherwise you better pray that the infrastructure of your city is going to blast through the coming decade, which I wouldn't make that bet. Mm. You got any of those pieces of advice to share yet? Or are you still having uh, mental toughness? Mental toughness leads to all other types of toughness. If you, you know, purposely do hard shit, w be willing to do hard things. And I, I find that is just so embarrassingly absent in our generation. Um, and even in our parents' generation, like no one's had real hardship. That's why everyone's focused on gender and race and, and all of this stuff all over, all over the Western world is because things have been too easy otherwise. And we're just talking about social issues. It's like, I, like there's never been a society that's just maintained that focusing on social problems and not had to worry about, you know, actual problems because black swan events occur and then something goes wrong. And then, you know, like, I don't think people realize how fragile, fragile our whole thing is. 
Um, so I'd, I'd rather just focus on that and become like physically tough and, and mentally tough. So, and, but it all starts with a mental game. Like I would read, I would tell people read about stoicism. Um, we've actually made courses about like personal development and shadow work and sovereignty and all of this stuff. So you could take one of those courses. Um, you know, there, there's lots you can do in your one bedroom apartment by yourself with nobody around, no community to kind of make yourself more adapted. And then when the time comes, then, you know, you can actually put that to the test. Maybe you'll be a part of a intentional community or maybe you'll be able to start something. But yeah, um, stoicism has like a huge amount of the basis, I think, to, to do something like this. The Enchiridion by Epictetus is, was really a good book, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I do like myself a lot. A little bit of Seneca. The poverty practice yeah. really struck it with me. Oh, I do yeah. still regularly yeah. do that. It's, it's beautiful. But then again, you see, my, a lot of people might say, hey, the fact that we're talking about gender and race, that's a sign of our progress. We're becoming more sensitive. We're solving these basic problems so that we don't have to deal with that anymore. And that way we can make ourselves more sensitive as humans. You don't think that that's progress? No, I don't at all. I think if you if people are comfortable and everything's provided for them, they're going to invent problems. I think there's a huge amount of psychological development and wisdom tradition that is missing. Like we don't we're not adults. We don't know how to become adults and take responsibility for our lives and say that like this is nobody else's problem but my own and and then adapt to that. So we we have, you know, 60-year-old children and I think uh if people don't have that developmental kind of switch turned on where they take responsibility for their lives, then if you leave them with everything taken care of, they're just going to twiddle their thumbs and think about the next problem that makes their life miserable. And they're just going to invent problems. I think that is a perfect example of what's happening out in the world, mm. in the Western world, I should say, because I've lived a lot of time. I've lived half my life outside of the Western world. And, and these problems don't exist outside of the Western world. No. Because people are actually focused on problems that, result in life or death no not how my feelings <laughs> sorry I'm, I'm harsh about this because <laughs> i care deeply about this and i'm just like fuck that attitude like it's so toxic it's so mm-hmm. detrimental and it just makes you weaker like you got to focus on things that make you stronger mm-hmm. you know just because we're in this temporary tiny window of prosperity i think everyone can agree we're on the decline from that <laughs> like with what's been going on the last couple of years, we're not going to just be on this upswing of prosperity. So, you know, you better kind of like make yourself a little more tough to deal with what's coming. Yeah. Is that saying, I think this, there's this saying that encapsulates entirely my belief system about where we are now and what we should do about it. Um, And it is hard times create strong people, strong people create good times, Good times create weak people. Weak people create hard times. Hard times create, you know, and the cycle continues. Oh, wow. So I just wish people would be aware of that cycle and then try and figure out their escape vector from that so that they can, you know, avoid good times making them weak. Well, so you've been toughing it out in Canada. It's been a cold winter or coming a cold winter again. What are you most excited about in the next few months? What has kept you excited? over the last few months? Well, I'm doing some really cool stuff with uh, Web3. Um, I'm playing with this, like we were hoping to release this 
collection of archetype um, like access tokens for our, our broader network. Um, and I put my heart and soul into that for almost two years now. And I think it's really cool. It's really coming along. Um, I'm also working on some innovations that are the underlying kind of basis of that. So basically uh, crypto tokens that have a degree of mutability and immutability. So, you, you know, you can release a token out into the wild that people own and you don't have control over, but there's a layer of information and visual inside of it that you do have control over as the project founder. So I'm kind of creating this system to allow for the easy ability to mint like 10,000 of these tokens and um, be able to control and communicate new information through them over time. Hmm. And then to actually make a system to transition uh, mutable elements of an, an NFT to immutable. So you basically lock it on the blockchain and it can never be changed. So that's something I'm playing with. And then the next thing is uh, we're heading to South America um, in another month or so to explore other projects and, and see what people are doing, see if we can learn lessons from other people. Exciting. Yeah. Do you feel ready to talk a bit about Portal DAO and the work that you've done with NFTs? I wasn't entirely sure whether you're ready to really publicly talk about this yet or because otherwise I'm happy yeah. to go in depth on that a little bit. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm I'm. Like, it's just taken a long time. Like, we've been talking about it for a long time. And, you know, it's been a lot of work and I've done most of it myself. Um, so it's just taken super long because I'm also, I have a toddler and I'm also running this, you know, project. And we've had a lot of fundraising stuff that we've had to do in the last year just to cover debts and big lump sum payments that were coming. So it's gone slower than I would have hoped, but I've also made a lot of progress. So... I'm excited to talk about it, but there's nothing people can like, there's no real way yet people can engage with it. Maybe in another couple of months. Well, then let's start. Why Web3? This is really a somewhat contentious issue in Earth for Generators right now, for example. Do we actually, how digital do we want to go? Do we want to use these technologies or not? What first brought you onto blockchain technologies and why did you decide to use it as a tool? Well, we, we interviewed, we, we found out about this kid, uh, who was starting this decentralized technology. And, uh, you know, the idea was to decentralize politics and, and web applications and currency. And, you know, he was take, basically taking Bitcoin and making a decentralized platform for apps. And, you know, the name of that guy is Vitalik Buterin. He was the founder of Ethereum. And so we found out about him about a month or two before he launched Ethereum. And we interviewed him on the podcast and that was a weird interview because he's obviously like fairly on the spectrum and just heads down, you know, thinking about his project. So I, I'm not sure it was like the best interview, but he did spark me to start thinking about decentralized tech a lot more. And that's really where the basis of my, like me caring about this, this field is, is I, I like the idea of decentralizing uh, production of goods and communication and and governance and uh, law. Like I, I'm fairly libertarian in the sense that I think government is insanely incompetent and basically does like achieves the opposite result of anything it attempts to do. Um, not a big fan of like government getting in the way of stuff. So you know, it just seemed like this sort of anarcho-libertarian thing might be interesting to explore. 
But as far as where the technology has gone now, and it still kind of fits. It's like, you know, distributing and decentralizing databases, um, reducing silos, reducing like repeated efforts, you know, when people are doing, taking the same steps to achieve the same goal and just wasting efforts by duplicating the amount of people doing it. So like having shared resources that are decentralized, publicly owned, having public goods, that sort of stuff, I think is pretty interesting. And then people like are hating on it now because of, you know, gas fees and like how much carbon is produced uh, because of all the mining. Um, but that's a very short term problem. That's not going to exist. And probably even in the next couple of years, that's not going to be an issue at all. What was the moment for you when it clicked? Wait, I can use this for what I'm trying to do. Was there like a specific application that really made it settle in for you? Well, I think the explosion of NFTs in the last two years was pretty, pretty interesting. Like the, one of the bigger problems in decentralized tech web three is adoption. People just don't understand it. They don't care. They don't like, why do I want this? Um, so I think adding scarcity to digital files, objects was a really interesting innovation. And then rethinking, you know, company shares and, and like how people coordinate and how they make organizations and thinking about the kind of lore and art and storytelling and all of that stuff that goes like that could be built into a currency or into a, a project. Um, so I love this idea of, of like buying into an organization or being becoming part of an organization and having an avatar that represents my membership to it. You know, that's what the PFP NFTs, the profile picture NFTs. And then like, you know, there's just so much lore and storytelling that is possible to build into it now that wasn't before. You just had a some dude's face who's, you know, on your, your money and you don't know anything about them. You're just exchanging money. So I don't know. I liked that. And then there was a book I read that Jordan Hall recommended to me a few years ago called Damon uh, by Daniel Suarez. And that book really went into a lot of like the, the lore of secret societies and how you might like upset the current system and build some new system underneath it that eventually became the dominant system. Um, so like the secret society thing, I really liked, like that just sounded cool and, and interesting, intriguing to me. So that's all of that is to say, I've been building that into our project. This like these secret tunnels into the project and, And, uh, you know, the archetypes are so deep and so mysterious and so interesting and so like ingrained in our psychological makeup and our evolutionary history that I thought, what a perfect like NFT avatar for people. And then all the stuff I've been building in, like all the utilities and all these, these sort of, you know, making NFTs change depending on events in the world or, or like data coming from. Uh, any number of sources or, or, you know, different kind of subgroups coming together and creating an event and then, and then disassembling. Like there's so many ways to communicate things in art, in NFTs. So I was just, yeah, I was captivated by it. I'm not a very artsy person, but the videos that I've seen of what you've made till now, I, just the archetype combination with that, really, it does trigger something. Yeah, I like it a lot. Yeah, and then the idea does. of portals as well. Yeah. What, 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 what was the idea behind that? What are you planning on 
why, why is it called portal dao what is portal dao it's essentially like this project we're hoping will be kind of a catalyst or a new a new step into a new world so the portal thing made a lot of sense i've also made this whole presentation of this like psychedelic underground society the the sort of like speakeasy daemon based like a society and it's at portaldao.io slash night n-i-g-h-t and i just assembled a whole bunch of animated gifs and and just tried to tell this story of a thing that i would do uh like if i had the resources and the time to do it i would create these like psychedelic experiences for people to go through and and to awaken into what is possible in the world i mean it's all stuff we talked about with future thinkers for for ages and you know building in experiences that that would build resilience or or give you wisdom or give you a gift or give you know like unlock things that was just really attractive to me so that's what portal that is kind of about kind of about it's about creating portals to new worlds and opening doors between different projects around the world. So I hope to create this network of portals between other regenerative villages and make this sort of a new type of lifestyle that people can opt into. Mm. And the idea is to then have actual people on the ground going from project to project. It's not online metaverse worlds or anything like that or both. Yeah, exactly. And this is another piece where Damon comes in because it's like, there's so much opportunity to blend the metaverse with the real world with augmented reality and virtual reality. And like there's, there are really interesting, cool ways to have overlays of information that you have, you're granted access to if you accomplish certain things and, you know, you uncover certain information. So I love this idea of the, the metaverse being blended with the real world. And I think there's a huge opportunity too, with what's going on with, you know, the um, uh, quest to, VR headset becoming so cheap and accessible for people and like all the advancements that are happening with artificial, artificial intelligence and VR and AR. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for educating people. I was just saying to UV the other day, like imagine a large number of indigenous leaders uh, interfacing with an artificial intelligence and kind of teaching it about their bioregion. And that AI's that AI being tasked to understand the patterns of a given bioregion, and to become the long-term like um, steward of that land. And then the way you would interface with it would be to ask it questions, almost like an oracle, and then it would teach you. And then combine that with VR, you'd be able, it would be able to show you, you know, migratory patterns of animals and flow of water and what something would look like if you planted a, a seed over here versus over there. Like I, I just kind of this like techno indigenous society seemed like a natural thing that would happen when you when we people realize the importance of stewarding Earth and using the latest tools that we have available to us. Hmm. Now we're going in a very interesting AI overlord direction. Is that really something that you think well is possible? Um, that we want it. Um... What are your thoughts on that? How how much do we want to involve in AI in running our villages and so on? Well, AI, people have a funny idea about AI. That, like They think AI is like one specific thing, but AI is a whole bunch of sub components. So I think this has been a really important year for AI because it's brought a very important and fun 
an interesting way of interacting with AI to the mainstream. And that's with Dolly and Midjourney and all of these image generation AIs. Suddenly people are like regularly re interacting with an AI for fun to create cool, creative things. And um, so I think it's funny, everyone's reaction at first is, wow, this is scary. That's the first thing they say when they they start using mid journey. Like, this is scary, but then they start playing with it more and they realize, oh, this is really fun and mm. interesting. Um, so I I think it's an important year for AI because of that. Suddenly, you know, we're realizing, oh, AI is not going to necessarily be controlled just by the elite in a dark, smoky room, you know, without the average person having any control over it. It's going to be accessible and distributed to a lot of people. So. The way you use it is kind of up to you, and you could use it for a whole bunch of different purposes. Um, I think it'll be a, a fantastic way to give people experiences because um, it can give you custom experiences, custom stories. It can kind of tailor things to you, you know, your educational experience. Or, um, yeah, I mean, it could it can go a lot of different ways. It's probably one of the biggest existential threats to our civilization now, but it's also probably one of the biggest opportunities. So yeah. like all the tools that we're talking about. <laughs> like I think AI will play a really interesting role in decentralized governance. You know, I think adversarial AIs that are, are constantly testing, like here's an example of an idea I had for an AI. Um, you know how easy it is to have your attention hijacked by YouTube or Facebook, like, you know, the feed, Instagram, all that garbage. I am so addicted to media. It's not not funny. It's such a problem. I wish there was an AI that I could just install as a browser extension that would learn me and inform me and try and, try and use different strategies to prevent me from uh, engaging in addictive behavior with YouTube. And you could set it to do that where it would watch my browsing habits and be like, all right, man, you're little, this is getting a little much. And then maybe it would affect the algorithm and feed me different things, like more useful things or more intellectual things or things that make me want to put the app down. Like there's all kinds of stuff, you know, all, all kinds of ways you would do that. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is a it is a constant struggle sometimes because you also don't want to get into a system where an AI fights an AI, fights an AI, fights an AI, fights an AI, um, just to try and keep a balance because at that point we get down to a race to the bottom dynamic again really. well that already exists yeah that, that's happening a lot now and actually it's not adversarialism between ais is not necessarily a bad thing like with image generation um you have an ai that takes a text prompt and searches the internet trying to find like the aggregate of what is this image and then you have another ai that watches the output of that image and goes that matches or that doesn't match and then it will say wrong and they'll kind of work against each other trying to find the best answer. So like dynamic tension and adversarial AIs are super beneficial. Mm. And my wife and I talk about this all the time. Like we, we disagree on a lot of stuff. We're very different people. And, but we've kind of like accepted and bought into the idea that the tension between our, our different ways of doing things produces something better. Yeah. Okay. Actually, let's use that point to get a little bit back on track. A lot of people, I think, from the outside think that you and UV are the same person and that you just agree on everything. And when you no. <laughs> run a project like that, I mean, obviously, this is not the case. You both are individuals and you have your own opinions. 
and yet you have to run this project together and probably some other family on the on the campsite. What's your process for coming up with a shared vision and then implementing it together? Because I think that's that's one of the main failure points for a lot of projects. There's not really a process. There's just a willingness to engage in hard things. I think that's pretty much the main thing. Like UV's tolerance for uncomfortable emotions is very high. And so is mine. So we can be on completely opposite ends of the spectrum about an idea, but we'll see it through. Uh, we won't slam the door and run away and be mad at each other. You know, we'll, and we've done this enough. Like we've been together more than 10 years now. So we've done this enough to recognize the pattern that like, okay, something fruitful will come out of this if we just lean into the discomfort and it's still hard. Like it always, it always is hard. So it, and, you know, as soon as you get over one thing, you discover there's a whole new layer of stuff you got to deal with that's that's hard as well. So we just both are stoic about our, you know, our attitudes towards uncomfortability and we just lean in. That's that's the main thing. Just always show up. Yeah, just show up. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because there's like there are a lot of people in our lives that don't do that and aren't willing to have conflict and that's where the most inefficiencies and, and biggest problems come in. Like when you can't actually confront someone and be like, Hey, this is a problem. Can we, can we work through it? Um, then that problem just persists. And yeah. So I think there's a lesson in there for like how to be in community too. Like most people don't want to offend. And so there's a lot of like group practice kind of collective intelligence practices that center around not offending the other and I think that's not that's not productive. The better the better way to go is for each person to become more resilient and be able to deal with uncomfortable subjects and just lean in. Talking about community, how have you gone about bringing in other people or not bringing other people? That's another key point that I think a lot of intentional communities start to have to deal with at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, Canada is a far, like our location is far away for a lot of people. So if you're coming from like Texas, you got a, you got a book of flights. That's probably going to be about eight hours or so. You probably will have a stop. You'll get to Vancouver. Then you have to take another flight to Kamloops. And then from there you have to drive two hours North to be able to get to a place. So it's a long hike. Um, and so we don't get a lot of visitors. We get we used to have more visitors in Bulgaria than we did than we do here, of people from our podcast. Um, but people are coming, and we we have been fairly quiet about it. So as soon as we start being loud again, then I'm sure lots more people will show up. But um, this place self selects. Like there are a lot of people that have messaged us saying, "Okay, like, hey, I want to come out and and stay with you guys for a couple of months." They're like, "All right, do you have a vehicle?" No. Do you have like, you know, do you have a camper or something you could stay in? No, I, I'll just get a tent. It's like, all right, do you have a way to cook food? No, I'll just eat raw food all the time. It's like, dude, you're not going to survive this. Like one weekend, you're going to be like, get me out of here. And you're going to realize, oh shit, I'm stuck because I didn't bring a vehicle. <laughs> so it's like, and you and I are so busy too that we we can't like, we can't engage in a lot of community stuff because we're just, you know toddler physical business online business like all kinds of stuff it's just really difficult to put the time into anything else yeah 
yeah, this is what's happening down here in Barichara right now, that we are relatively inaccessible, but there are still people interested in coming and so on. Some people come only for a day and to some degree, of course, have the expectation, oh yeah, you know, we've heard of this person doing this project, so now we want him to show us the project as though we're not also busy doing stuff and so on. So yeah. The other thing, people don't understand time scales. Like they think they're going to come in and like work on a project, but you, you know, you've got to go through permitting and approvals and funding and um, you know, you got to wait for weather to be like, I've been building a sawmill so that we can use wood from our property for like a month and a half. <laughs> like why does it take so long to build a sawmill? It's so silly. But yeah, just things get in the way and projects take forever. So like we had a bunch of people coming to visit because um, they wanted to be part of a building project. I was like, I can't even build the tool to even initiate a building project in less than a month and a half. So yeah, things just take a long time. Yeah. And then we've also got like our, our campsite is super popular. Like in the span of four months, uh, we'll, we'll sometimes get like 4,000 visitors. Yeah. So that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. That's garbage. That's cleanup. That's customer service. That's um, you know high turnover. Um, there, there's a lot. There's like repair, land maintenance, all kinds of stuff. Uh, pipes burst. Like there's all types of things that go wrong. Machines break down. So like you're just just maintenance is full time work for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. What's that been like? Because again, you go buy the piece of land and you're like, okay, now we're going in where we're going to build our beautiful vision with lots of glass domes and so on, build the future. And then you're stuck and you need the permits and you need the material and you have to tend to keeping everything running and maintenance and so on. What's that been like for you? Well, we didn't, okay. It definitely has been longer than we thought it would be, but also we didn't create any expectations that we emotionally leaned on that, you know, oh, this needs to happen or I suck. So it wasn't like that. Um, but also to get this place, we got a really good deal on the land. And we, we were negotiating for months before uh, we purchased it. And, you know, there were a lot of competing bids on the land and other people really wanted it. And so we had like the sellers had cash offers and, you know, we'll, we'll pay you tomorrow cash, the full amount. And we'd already been negotiating for weeks. So I had to kind of, like bring in, I didn't negotiate a lot and bring in more, you know, more value to the table for the sellers, for them to keep working through it with us. So I had part of that deal was I had to come up with lump sum payments multiple times uh, throughout the first couple of years. And so we've already had a couple of those milestones pass where we've had to like raise a ton more money. And, and so I've just been like shuffling around debt and trying to figure out how to consolidate debt and, you know, create deals and bring investors in and all this stuff. So that's taken a lot of time just to do that. That's full time for a year that I've basically been working on. I've been splitting between the NFTs fundraising and like trying to be available as much as possible to everyone who's actually working on the land here. No. So yeah, slow. but I mean, on the horizon, um, I'm trying to work with avid CNC to get them to send us uh, sponsored uh, CNC machines so that we can like carve out uh, a lot of the furniture and and like cabinetry and all the stuff that we would need as in addition to like some of the houses there's sort of I'm exploring wiki house 
which is an interesting project to be able to like Lego snap together pieces of plywood in, mm. and build a house. Um, and so, you know, we bought the sawmill and set that up. So we're, we're working right now on the infrastructure to be able to build and use the materials off the land. Yeah. So you guys are trying to go more down a path of these kind of quickly assembled, standardized, cheap material cost kind of places that look kind of cool but are really mass produced but patternable and then replicable? Or are you trying to go more of that local permaculture, what's right here? Um, we're going to try and build something beautiful, but it's going to take a lot of time. Um, there's a middle ground there. Um you know, you can download templates off the internet and plug it into a CNC machine using local materials to produce, you know, a patterned, fairly replicable um, house. Mm. So, yeah, there's definitely a middle ground. Um, we've explored timber framing a lot and uh, hempcrete and uh, earthen straw bale homes and like hobbit homes and all that stuff. Um, there's a lot of considerations with the weather systems here. You need insulation. You need stuff that can take on snow load for like months and months and months. Um, you need to think about heating and, and electricity and what happens if things break down in the winter. It's a giant nightmare. So that really changes the kind of standardization of, of housing. And if you have a ton of different types of houses, um, some may be more or less resilient to the, the weather than others. So there's a need for standardization hmm. that... You know, and then there's aesthetic too. Some people just really, they want to build something, but they have no eye for aesthetics and they just make it like a dumpster fire and you, you have to deal with that. Like what, you know, this looks like crap. People are running away from this place because of your, your thing. So we've had to make like standardization for, you know, aesthetic that, that, that is important despite what people want to believe about it. You know, if you make your house out of trash, it's going to look like trash unless you put the extra effort into it. Yeah. But as much as possible, I mean, old building styles, old building techniques, using earth, straw bale, you know, you can mm. do a lot. You can make them look really nice. All right. I mean, I've been keeping on asking like specific questions about the different approaches that you can take to building the smart village. I would love to just have you riff on everything that I just can't think of like things that surprised you challenges or anything like that. Is there anything that you would like to share? There's a lot to be said about the kind of like traditional roles of, of people in a project like this, like the, the differences between the genders really amplifies when you're focused on infrastructure and survival level things. Uh, and especially when you have kids that that all, you know, becomes so apparent, but it also, you realize how archetypal it is um, like UV works far less on future thinkers than she ever did before and, and far less on a lot of the tech because we have a toddler. And so she's, she does a lot of just maintenance of the family level stuff. Um, a lot more like service-based customer service, that sort of thing, like people-based stuff. And I'm, I've gone a lot deeper into the tech and infrastructure and like heady kind of things than I ever did before. So um, there's a pronounced difference between us that, wasn't as obvious before and i think is quite archetypal for the genders um and then what else i've been i've been trying to figure out better ways to collaborate like i'm highly introverted engineer technical kind of minded person um i find it so much easier just to learn how to do something and do it myself than to like hire someone and yeah 
and that's really a challenge too, especially considering like the economic state our world is in. Like I find I have to be so much more frugal and make sure that I'm making the right financial resource allocation decisions. Um, so a lot of the time it ends up being that I just have to do stuff myself, um, which is, which sucks and slows things down. So I am trying to figure out how to be in community in a way that distributes the hard things. And I found that to be a difficult thing. I don't have any answers for yet, um, but I'm playing with, you know, decentralized, uh, collaboration structures. And obviously we started this DAO. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to uh, build in sustainable incentive structures that, that go past the, you know, when the excitement dips down and you're just doing a job, like how do you, how do you keep people kind of motivated there? So that's something I'm thinking about a lot. Um, what else? I think about the meta culture and the culture wars a lot. And that's probably where my media addiction comes in because I'm constantly consuming stuff uh, about the culture wars. And, you know, my position on that subject is fairly unique because I spent, you know, almost half my life outside of the Western world. And now I find myself in a rural piece of land trying to build stuff when, you know, I'm like a hermit engineer out in the wilderness doing this project. So I, yeah, I think about that kind of stuff a lot. Like what are some of the solutions for the meta crisis or the culture wars? And I think a lot of it has to do with just stop, stop talking about it so much and do something, you know, um, do hard things. That, that's kind of like my continu continued message, stoicism and doing hard things. Yeah, there's some there's something I, that also exists uh, for me that I think is kind of weird, which is um, like allowing myself to pursue things that don't have a financial gain attached to them. Like that's been a thing since we left Canada years ago that has stuck with me and now coming back to Canada and being around more Canadians, I, it's a lot more pronounced. Like I think people are so practical and so just worried about their resources that it's very difficult to pursue things that don't have some sort of productive, you know, gain behind them. But it turns out a lot of that stuff I focused on just because I really enjoyed it and, and um, wanted to learn. Uh, has become part of the productive gains of our efforts, our work, our projects. So like I've pursued a lot of art creation over the years, like taught myself After Effects and Photoshop and Illustrator and animation, all kinds of stuff. And like that has come into play so much more than I ever thought of, thought it would with our projects. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm learning to like do drone racing right now. So I'm like... That sounds like playing, playing a drone simulator game and and uh, like doing drone freestyle and you know tricks and flying into like small windows and stuff and I don't know how that's useful yet but everything I've <laughs> put effort into doing is useful in some form or another. So one thing that earlier came to mind talking about the metaverse, if you were given the possibility to have a Neuralink put into your head and you could live the rest of your life in the metaverse 
in a way that you can design by yourself. I don't know, you can fly and so on and it feels real and it's all awesome. Knowing how difficult it is to create this in the real world. Like you could just create what you're doing right now as an on-the-ground project in the metaverse and it would be so much easier. If somebody were to <laughs> say, so I'm going to sponsor you, would you go for it? Check this out. Um, the book I'm reading right now is called Reality Plus and it's by David J. Chalmers. It's uh, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. And it essentially asks this question for the entire length of the book. Like, if you could live in the matrix, would you choose to do it? Um, and it goes over a ton of philosophical questions about that, um, about, you know, do we live in the simulation? Talks about the simulation hypothesis quite a lot. Um, and then Yuvi and I have joked about this for years because I'm a gamer and I, I love VR and all of this stuff and I'm a geek and, um, you know, Yuvi's very opposite on that. She's very naturalist. She loves to be out, you know, in the garden and wants nothing to do with technology. So... You know, we've we've had the joke, running joke going for a long time that as soon as VR gets to the like right level, she's going to come home one day and find me in a vat <laughs> underground with VR and I'll never I'll never leave. But that's not true, actually. Um, I'm mostly excited about AR. I think that's that's where we have the most because it's mixed reality. It's bringing in, you know, VR and the advantages of VR into the physical world. I just love the idea of an AR mediated, uh, or sorry, artificial intelligently mediated augmented reality system that would constantly be looking at your environment and trying to f help you to improve your environment or improve your situation or learn. Like, I don't know anything about gardening, but I would love to put on some goggles and just walk out in, into the, the backyard and for an AI to be like, you've got some issues with soil over here. You might want to just like mitigate this water path here and, you know, just kind of give me advice on, on how to be a better naturalist. And I think that's very possible that that could be the case in a few years. So, and then also like visualizing some of our plans for, for, for build, building our projects, like it might see things ahead of me and save me time and money, uh, stop me from wasting my time on, on things that aren't going to work. So I think that's really the thing I'm most excited about. I, VR is kind of like, uh, it's tiring. Like you have a thing strapped to your head, you're disconnected from reality. You've got blue light shining in your eyes, which they say is not a good thing. And it's not good for your sleep. So I'm not a big fan of, of like extended periods of VR use. But um, your question was about Neuralink. I would let a lot of people go first on that. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would wait that one out a bit, um, but eventually, probably, yeah. I mean, if the thing that I think people don't really think about with with interfacing with technology, they kind of picture it's like you know this pixelated false reality, and I don't think they realize that um, transhumanism, augmenting the self, increasing you know, your interface with technology might have the effect of vastly increasing your sensory capacity. So, you know, you, you might, you might alter your eyes to see infrared and, and to see, see much more than you regularly do. And, and as a meditator and, and a contemplative person, that might be a highly, that might be a thing with a lot of utility.
you know, to understand the nature of reality. I'm a philosopher. I'm a, I'm a, I love thinking about these things. So if I have more ability to sense my surrounding environment and be connected to it, whether or not it's mediated by technology, you know, if it gives me more ability to sense and feel and, and think, then yeah, I'd probably be up for that. Interesting. And then with VR too, like the resolution and the sensory capacity of VR will one day very likely exceed the real world. Like our ability, we're so limited by physics, by chemical neurotransmission. And a lot of that goes away if you're interfacing directly with technology. And you might find yourself in a situation where you're seeing more, doing more, sensing more, have a more spiritual connection. You know, there, there could be a lot more to that than I think people realize. Mm. Yeah. But I'll, I'll let a bunch of people go first. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, hmm, there's two, two places that I want to go with this. On the one hand, trust in technology. Um, I think that that's one of the key thing that has gone through this conversation. How much do you trust technology to solve the problems for you in the future? Well, like I said, I'm I'm like a person who talks about resilience and thinks about resilience a lot. So I think technology has done a disservice to our evolutionary path. And it has done that since agriculture, basically. Like the less diverse set of tasks and things that we need to do in a day, uh, the less our brain is required to be large and adaptable uh, to all of these different tasks. Like we do far less than our ancestors did on a daily basis as far as diversity of tasks. And that has caused our brain to shrink something like 10 to 15% in the last couple of thousand years. So that's not good. Um, and I, I prefer to like do things myself and think for myself and, and not use technology as a crutch. On the other hand, I'm, a, I'm an engineer and I think about how things work and I learn like I, I've hacked, I have a bunch of meta skills that allow, that have allowed me to like hack certain things. So I've spent a lot of time developing the skill to learn how to learn. So I'm an efficient learner, you know, and I don't, I don't believe in trust. Uh, trust is irrelevant. It's like you either know how something works or you don't. And you trust is only required if you don't know how it works. Mm. If without, then you, you don't have to trust it. You know how it works. Yeah. And if it doesn't do what you want it to do, then you alter it or you stop using it. Well, but at the same time, do you know how blockchain works? I don't yeah. think a lot of people know deeply enough how blockchain works to say they have a sufficient understanding in order to make this a mainstream thing and still claim consensus, uh, yeah, participation through consent. Um, with a lot of these technologies, yeah. the tech stack just gets so difficult that you can't claim anymore. Yeah, everybody has like read the uh, read the general terms of conditions and they have understood everything and they know what, how the technology works. So if we screw them over, then it's their fault because they're informed humans. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, it's the, it's the same situation. Like I know how it works. So I know the risks of being like, approve this transaction, you know, without reading the code that you're approving in MetaMask. Um, so, and I know that most people probably don't know what that means and they're going to improve, approve transactions and potentially ruin their financial situation if they're, if they're all in on crypto. Um, so yeah, I don't really have an answer to that. The interfaces are getting better. 
you know, the more things are open source and available to the public to like break and test, then the more you're going to have vetted solutions by, you know, experts and you won't need to think about it so much, but we're not at that point right now with blockchains. All right. Yeah. So to sum up, start a smart village, show up, be tough and just try to learn things by yourself and understand them so that you can trust in yourself to be able to handle what's going on, huh? Yeah. Meta skills. Meta skills. Yeah. Gain meta skills. Um, learn how to learn. Be efficient. That's that's another huge thing. Like I'm blown away how inefficient. Like if you if you if you don't know how to optimize your day-to-day tasks and optimize your thinking about things, then you will have far less output over time. It just compounds. And if you're, but if you're approaching it in a different way where you're, you're constantly optimizing the speed of your thinking in, in how you do things and how you learn things, you can pack a lot more in. And I've, I've been doing that since I was like a teenager and it has really compounded like the, the amount of skills I've been able to pick up because of that. And, you know, I find there's just so many people arguing against that. Like it's not all about efficiency, man. It's like, you got to connect with the people, man, like that kind of stuff. And I'm like, all right, you know, go for it. But you know, it's a I'll be over here doing a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> talk about doing stuff. One main problem that I've found with this is you start to torture yourself when you're not doing something. You're like, it pushes you into a negative self image. How do you deal with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've got a specific DMT trip that I did, uh, that was that <laughs> it was, so we were in Bulgaria and we got a hold of some DMT and UV got a hold of some MAOI inhibitors, which are the, the part that turns DMT into an orally activated substance, which is basically ayahuasca, you, you know, which turns, you know, a, a 15 minute trip into several hours. So I took like a small sip of tea that had this MAOI inhibitor and had some DMT. And what I thought would turn into maybe a 20 minute trip instead of 10 ended up being like three hours. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for it at all. Not mentally prepared, like nothing. I was just in the wrong environment at the wrong time, total, total bad trip. And that was one of the things that came up is like this tunnel of fingers pointing in at me being like, you suck at this. You're bad at this. Why do you do this? You know, it's totally self-critical. Um, I told Jason Silva about that one time and it, it, he was like, this is my nightmare. <laughs> <Don't tell me>. <laughs> <laughs> that was a funny conversation. Yeah. So that it's definitely a problem, but it's also, it's, it's a, something that everyone has. I think it's something you got to work through like the self-critical voice. Um, you just have to, it's part of the contemplative process like the enlightenment process or the becoming an adult process like you have to be self-critical but also you have to be in touch with reality about what is possible for a human to accomplish with your background and your skill set and your resources and so i've had to like just um i don't know what i've done to deal with that it's not so much of a problem anymore but i did a lot of psychedelics and cannabis and stuff and that really helped me work through some stuff well, thank you for this little bit of human insight i think that's really easy to leave out when you talk to these regenerative project leaders to realize oh yeah they're just humans too and they have to deal with the everyday problems the self-criticism and so on so thank oh you. yeah yeah i've got tons of problems i'm 
uh, I'm overly critical. Like I find I'm critical of others uh, to the extent that I'm critical of myself. So it's like the same finger pointing in at me is also pointing out at others too. So I've tried, I'm trying to work on that. And then also I've got a temper and, you know, I, I'm super impatient. Like I want things to happen now and they don't ever. So that's annoying. Um, but you know, I don't know. I'm a human. I'm working through stuff. And Thank you for showing up. I, yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right. So you're working on one project. There's a lot of other projects like this out there. And we actually talked about this recently. How do we get these projects to coordinate so that we get a seat at the bigger table? Um, do you want to share some thoughts on how you, what you've been envisioning there? Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I'm finding there are a lot of people out there doing some similar work to what we're doing. And I'm trying to figure out like, what's my piece to do and what are other people's pieces to do? How do I not duplicate efforts? And it's a really hard question because often the kind of aerodynamics of doing stuff and being an entrepreneur leads you into this like siloed path. It's not just a matter of our systems or capitalism being siloed. It's like there's some sort of inherent thing that happens when you're attempting to do something with limited resources. Like if we had infinite resources, maybe it would be different, but we don't. So yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer for it, but I, I think like, I'm also the wrong person to ask because I'm kind of the, the, you know, like I said, the engineer introvert person. And that's like the biggest thing I'm trying to work on this year is to just collaborate more with others. Um, I just, what I'm trying to do, I don't know if it's the right answer. I'm just trying to be as transparent as possible. Here's, here's what I have. Here's what I'm bringing to the table. Here's, here are my suspicions about this deal that we're working on, or here are my problems with it. I'm just trying to be upfront and lean in as much as possible. Um, the other thing too, though, is like this one unified thing that's supposed to manage everyone's project or like bring everyone together, you know, under the spirit of collaboration is not always the way to go. Like, you know, that's, that's kind of what it's the natural creation of, bureaucracies and, and centralized government is when people go, you know what, you're doing this thing over here and you're doing this thing over here. We need to just put this under one umbrella and they consolidate power and decision-making and all that stuff. So there's a degree of, I think, I don't know, decentralization and duplication of effort that I think has to actually take place for things to be resilient and for people to learn the same lessons. And, you know, so I don't know. I'm not, I'm not like, super convinced yet that we need this large system to manage you know everything i'm i prefer like what i'm going to be focused on in the next year is creating more education to help people to do this type of thing so you know learn take this course read this book do whatever um and then go go nuts you know start your project if you want and you know hire me to come consult and i'll show up <laughs> at your place and help you but beyond that um, you got to learn so much yourself. I think you just got to do stuff and everyone's like kind of leaning in this direction of wanting to collaborate and, you know, engage the network and, and all of this stuff. And I'm open to it. I'm leaning in that direction, but I'm not convinced yet that it's like the ideal thing. I think there's probably a lot of middle ground of like, you know, capitalistic incentives and solo activity and mm. entrepreneurship, 
you know, um, what's the what's the term I'm looking for? Um, libertarian values that come in and then that need to figure out a way to plug in with the network. Yeah. Yeah. Tough I, question. That's what we do here. Tough questions all the way. And I should have probably said this at the beginning. I like asking questions that there is no answer to. So uh, mm. also for the listeners, Mike has been doing like his absolute best. There is no answer to. <laughs> but there's just no answer. So thank you yeah. very much for engaging with that so much. Um, it's been really, been really, really cool. Yeah. Well, awesome. I guess last question is, in the next five years, if everything were to go like a breeze, what would you like to see um, in your project, in Canada, in the world? What would you like to see happen? Um, I, I picture sort of like the year being broken up into thirds, where we're in one location, one third of the year, another location, another third, and then maybe traveling or, or visiting uh, new places for the other third. Um, I picture a network of villages where you are essentially a member um, and you own a piece of it and you can be mobile if you choose to be, or you can focus on one location. Um, I picture a lot more uh, local bioregional focus, like maybe these villages are be close to each other and you, you'll move, you know, a short distance between each location. Um, I think like, low friction mobility between villages is really important. And then I would love to see an explosion of art and creativity. Um, I think art is a lot of fun. It makes hard ideas more pal palatable and makes places attractive to go to and visit. So I'd love to kind of point my attention more at creativity and art in different locations and help other people to do that as well. Maybe find ways to fund it. Um, and then sustainability and self-sufficiency, I think is a big one, like starting gardens and, and producing an abundance of food for every bioregion that we're a part of. Um, just creating more resiliency and independence from supply chains and governments and all of that stuff. Like, let's just build our stuff in communities. So, yeah, maker spaces, self sufficiency. That's exciting. That's a man. Long answer. But <laughs> exciting. Well, that's what podcasts are for: long answers. Um, so, in the spirit of that, anything else you want to share? Anything else that you didn't get to mention that you're excited about? Well, I want people to get involved in this project. So I would say go to portaldow.io. Um, I'm pretty sure I have a mailing list somewhere on yeah. the page. Um, and we've got an Instagram where I'm starting to publish some of these images. And that's at house underscore of underscore archetypes. Um, so probably just engaging with that stuff. And then we're looking to really open up collaboration and so we're going to start regular zoom calls and bring people in um and there are a number of slideshows and stuff that you could check out portaldao.io slash day and portaldao.io slash night are two different slideshows and they're kind of like the suit and tie version that we present to the bureaucrats and like the the people who are like more tech focused and then the psychedelic version where we're like this is what we're really doing underground <laughs>
I already yeah. know which one I'm going to look at first. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Sick, man. I wish you all the energy to work on these exciting projects to keep on going. Um, Thank you. All the best to everybody working on that. I know it takes a lot of endurance. So, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> love and service and go for it, man. It's been Thank super you. fun to talk to you. Appreciate it. Yeah, this has been fun for me too. Great. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a decentralized platform for the regenerative community. Anybody on Earth Regenerators can propose or record their own episode. So if you are already on Earth Regenerators, contact Jacob Seidler if you have an idea for a future interview or audio essay. And if you're not on there yet, come and join us for regular learning journeys on the pathway to regeneration, inspiration from the many regenerative projects reporting there, and a wonderful community woven around mutual support. Just enter Earth Regenerators into your search engine and find a website or follow the link in the description. Let's regenerate the Earth. <laughs>